There he is. Good evening, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And please stand with me as we read Philippians 3. I'll read the whole chapter, but our focus this evening will be verses 1 through 3. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ." Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things." For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies, our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, 
according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Amen. You may be seated. Let us ask our Lord to bless these words to us. O oh, our Father in heaven, we do cry out to you, hear us this evening. Lord, we have not come here to be entertained. We have not come here to be pleased in our flesh. Lord, I do not want to simply please myself. Lord, my brethren do not simply want to hear my words. We want to hear from you. And we want you to work in our hearts and in our minds in such a way that we would love Christ more and walk with him more faithfully. I pray that we would do that. Oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive me, O oh Lord, of our many sins. Lord, we have just read how we are to love Christ so much. And the things of this world are so worthless in comparison. Oh, turn our hearts from this world to our great Savior. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Our subject tonight is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Is the Lord Jesus Christ all in all to you? He should be. Is Christ's work on your behalf your joy and gladness? Or do you rest some of your spiritual weight on some other things? Maybe on certain people or certain activities. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul addresses the core of the Christian experience. And he sums it all up in one phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And today I hope to scratch the surface by exploring the first few verses of this passage. And then if the Lord wills and gives me the opportunity in future messages, we might look at the amazing ways that rejoicing in the Lord affects every aspect of our life. Because that's what this chapter does. It goes on to give light to all of our life experience. Verse 1, then he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Paul here warns the Philippians of great threats to that rejoicing, that rejoicing in the Lord. He'll tell us that there are dogs evil workers who stand in the way. Paul instructs the believers in Philippi in the true character of that rejoicing as he goes through this chapter. He tells them that it means counting all else as loss and pursuing the knowledge, the sufferings, and the resurrection power of Christ with all our hearts. Rejoicing in the Lord defines the character of the real Israel of God, the true circumcision, as we'll see. Let's think about this word rejoice for just a minute. Sometimes this word is the general term for being cheerful or happy. It can mean simply happiness, being calm and well off. Often this word is used as a greeting. The original word that's behind the English word is used as a greeting in the New Testament. It's translated sometimes as hail, like where in the Gospels we see that term hail master, Judas Iscariot speaking to our Savior. It's literally rejoice, Master. That was a common greeting in those days. 
or hail king of the Jews when the soldiers were mocking our Savior. Or when our Lord Jesus, after he rose again from the dead, he said to his people, all hail. Rejoice, literally. But there, in those passages, it has the idea of a greeting. In the New Testament, the word is also used in the sense of to delight in or to be glad for a particular reason. But where rejoice is commanded, like it is here, it's in the imperative, it is an active word, a deliberate decision to approach something with a particular attitude. Here it's not being used as a greeting. It doesn't just simply mean to have a good feeling, but Paul is commanding us to something. This is not a passive experience of emotion, just feeling happy. Another time when it's used in the imperative like this, command, is in Luke chapter 6, where the Lord Jesus says that in the day when his disciples would be persecuted, he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. You don't just feel happy when you're being persecuted. You have to make a decision and look at something else that is very valuable and say, I'm going to take delight. I'm going to be glad in that thing. And that is, of course, Christ and his glory. <clears throat> Paul commands us, for example, in Romans chapter 12, to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's not just something that happens to us. It's something we do, something we are to actively engage in toward our brethren to sympathize in their gladness and in their joy. And not only is rejoice here in Philippians chapter 3 a deliberate action, but Paul uses this idea of rejoicing in the Lord with an aspect of confidence or trust in our Savior. And if the Lord gives us the opportunity in our next message, we may look at verses 4 through 11. And there Paul is looking at confidence in the flesh versus confidence in Christ. And Paul says it makes all the difference in a Christian's life where your confidence lies. With confidence in Christ, Paul cast away all his earthly credentials and looked for security in Christ and his work alone. Now all he wants is to experience Christ, experience his sufferings and experience his power, the power of his resurrection and his life lived in him. And as Paul continues on past verse 11 in verses 12 through 17, Paul shows that one aspect of rejoicing in the Lord includes pursuit, a continual pursuit of Christ and his glory until we get that full experience of the glory at the end. And then in verses 18 through 21, the end of the chapter, Paul shows that rejoicing in Christ and finding delight in his return is contrasted with groveling in the lusts of the flesh and being consumed with thoughts of earthly things. And Paul was so sick of seeing men stoop so low to the lusts of this world that he said, I tell you, even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And what was their great crime? They mind earthly things. What made Paul cry? To see people think about worldly stuff all the time. And our pastor Jeff asked us that question. Do we weep for the honor of God when we see men so dishonor our Savior? But how does this rejoice, this command, rejoice in the Lord, how does it relate to our common use of the idea of joy or happiness as an emotion? 
As we read this chapter, we've read through it, chapter 3 of Philippians, did you notice that Paul did not address the subject of emotions or feelings directly? Emotions are certainly involved in rejoicing in the Lord. But clearly they are not the primary thing that Paul is aiming at. He's not just directly going for emotions. Now as a believer in Christ, we should be seeking what Peter calls joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's First Peter, I believe, where he is telling us that we have this great gift of joy and we can't even describe it. It's such an emotional experience that we can't put a name on it. We should long for that experience. We should also long for the experience that our Savior promised where he said, ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. But Paul here is not directly looking at our experience of some emotional thrill or happiness as we might feel it. When he says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord, he doesn't follow it with a discussion of how without Christ we feel disappointed in life and let down and discouraged by various things, nor do we find him giving us sympathetic counsel about our self-esteem and our self-image and how things aren't going so well in our life. And the action words that follow this command, there's a lot of action words in this chapter, the action words that follow this command to rejoice in the Lord, they don't have to do with our emotional state. Rather, they have to do with our mind and behavior. Verse 3, we see that the verbs, the action words, worship, rejoice, having no confidence. Those are actions, states of the mind. Verse 4, confidence again, thinking, trust. Verse 7 and 8, counting loss, counting all things but loss, suffering the loss, counting things to be but dung. Those are deliberations of the mind, not feelings. Verse 10, that I may know him. That's an experience perceived in the mind, even though it's greater than just the mind, is to fully enter into the experience of Christ's suffering and power. Verse 12, follow after is the verb that we see there. Verse 13, I count not myself to have apprehended. And then he speaks of forgetting things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before. Those are not emotional states, but actions. And they, they include the actions of our body and also the, the function of our mind. Verse 14, I press toward the mark. Verse 15, let us therefore be thus minded. Verse 16, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Verse 17, the actions there, be followers together of me and mark them which walk. So as you have us for an example. And then verse 20, our conversation, and hopefully we'll talk about that, but it means our citizenship or commonwealth, the management of our affairs is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. And so this, this command to rejoice in the Lord, Paul fills it out and follows it up by a whole set of activities. Surely they will have a bearing on our emotional state. If we are rejoicing in the Lord as Paul instructs us here then surely we will experience that fullness of joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. But it, Paul doesn't just jump directly to that. He's not just trying to hype us up. He's not just trying to give us a particular liver quiver. He is giving us meat for our lives. 
And he's turning us from the banality, the foolishness, the emptiness of earthly living to the fullness and glory of heavenly thought, heavenly life, Christ-focused living. Rejoicing for Paul means thinking and acting in a way that is gladly, cheerfully, freely, willingly, in harmony with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. As we have it here, it is a command to think in a particular way about Christ and to decide to live in a particular way that reflects love to Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a big, whole life kind of thing. Are you rejoicing in the Lord tonight? Are your thoughts and your actions willingly, freely, cheerfully in pursuit of the living Christ who reigns in heaven now? Praise God if you are. If not, why not? Is Christ nothing to you? Is the Savior of men the only Savior who ever lived and ever will live and he lives forever now? Is he no more to you than an interesting idea that flits across the screen of your mind and then vanishes into darkness as more important things fill the screen? God forbid. Rejoice in the Lord. What is there in Christ to rejoice in? Everything. Amen. We'll see more of that in future messages. But in our Christ, we have the richest treasure that ever was in any treasury. In his person, he's the fairest of 10,000. As God is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous, all-merciful, he created all things, he sustains all things by his power, by his word. As man, because he became a man, he understands and sympathizes with you. And as man, he paid all the price for your sin. He earned your perfect righteousness in his obedience to God's holy law. As man, he suffered, he died, he rose again, and he ascended up into glory. And as man and as God, he intercedes for you forever. He loves you. Why should you not love him back? He rejoices over us with singing. We should rejoice in him with singing. This is the Lord Jesus who would save his people from their sins. He is our king, our master, our Lord. He is your priest. He paid the price, shed his blood, washes away your sins. He is your prophet, your teacher. Every word that instructs your mind and heart to follow God's will comes from him. He is your husband, your friend, the lover of your soul. He is your Lord and God, as Thomas declared when he put his hand in the print of the nails and in Christ's side after he rose again. Rejoice in this Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in him. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you. It is safe. Rejoicing in the Lord is the path of safety in a religiously perverted world. We don't know. Maybe Paul had sent these Philippians another letter urging them to rejoice in the Lord before this one. Or maybe he had simply preached it to them when he was present with them in person. 
But this is no new thing for these believers at Philippi. This is the same message again and again. And he says, it's not, it's not a grievous thing to me to repeat myself, but it's safe for you. Repeating the basics is crucial for Christian health and safety. I don't know all the religious experiences that you have had, and I don't need to know, but I can, I can guarantee you that you've had one experience. There's been some time or another when your flesh has tempted you to think that your relationship with Christ was secure, and worse than that, that it was all it needed to be. And you took your eyes off of your great lover, of your soul, you stopped consciously seeking to abide in him like we heard on Sunday, and instead you started heaping up religious activities and looking to them for satisfaction and security. I know it's happened to you because it's happened to me. And our Lord warns us about it constantly in the word in different ways. When we take our eyes off of our Savior and put it on ourselves and our doings. Maybe you were avoiding the temptations of the flesh, of lust, of violent passion. But what about this temptation of not rejoicing in the Lord, but rejoicing in something else? What about the temptation to rejoice, find confidence, satisfaction, rest, hope, gladness in your works or in some other person or in experiences that you've had? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't bother Paul to come back to this topic because it's safe for you and I. <clears throat> After he tells them to rejoice in the Lord and he tells them why he doesn't mind repeating himself, he commands them to reject the religion that would allure them to rejoice or joy in earthly things, even earthly religious things. And that's in verse 2. Here we have a negative arena. We were in the positive, but now we enter the negative. And he begins with beware. It means look out for, watch out for, be on the lookout for something. There's a threat. And we recognize the phrase because we see it all over town. Beware of dogs. Beware of the dog. Here he says, it's in the plural, there's more than one. Beware of dogs. Dogs. Dogs, evil workers, the concision. He says here, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Whoa, Paul, who, who are these? Who are these dogs, these evil workers? This strange word we hear, concision. What is all this? Now, we don't know specifically who Paul exactly was talking about because you can read commentaries and look at history and try to figure out who exactly were the dogs that Paul is speaking of. We don't know specifically, but because Paul goes on directly after this to talk about his own earthly credentials for Judaism, it's clear that these enemies of true Christianity were either Jews or some class of Christian Judaizers. Judaizers were those who valued circumcision and the keeping of the law of Moses so much that they allowed it to compromise their gospel, their doctrine of justification by faith alone. So they said people must become Jews before they can become Christians. So either these were some kind of Jew or Judaizer. And Paul reproves these Jewish sectarians by calling them these three names. Dogs, evil workers, 
and the concision. Now dogs, in the Jewish mind, were unclean animals. Jews did not keep pet dogs because dogs were unclean and they were not allowed to touch them. If you touched a dog, you had to go through a whole process of purification in order to go back to the tabernacle and to worship God. It wouldn't be any fun to have a pet dog. You'd always be at home and never able to be around anybody else. So they didn't have pet dogs. Dogs were in the street. They were considered vicious, gluttonous, and violent. Dogs roamed the streets in snarling packs, scavenging for food. Paul is saying that those who pride themselves in upholding the ceremonial cleanness laws were like unclean creatures, even dogs, which is a total slap in the face in a sense because he's saying you who pride yourselves in being clean, you're unclean. But not only are dogs unclean, they are also beasts of the earth. They have no higher view, no goal, no ambition than earthly considerations can give them. What do they want? What does a dog want? He wants a bone. He wants a pile of something nasty. He wants things that have no inherent value and no true value as humans who are made in the image of God can see. Why did the Pharisees stoop so low as to blow a trumpet for men to applaud them when they gave alms? Why did they ring a bell so that men could give praise to them? Why did they pray on the street corners? Because they were stooping so low as to seek earthly benefits for heavenly things. Paul says that's doggish. To look, to take God's heavenly things, the glory of God, and to bring it down to earthly level and just look for the praise of men, the honor of men, or your own gratification. We should be loving God, loving Christ, serving Him. And so he calls these who adhere to the Jewish practices and compromise the gospel. He says, you're dogs. And he tells the Christians, beware of dogs. There's an application here for us. God is not only interested in what we are doing, but why we're doing it. Do you do your good works to be seen by men? I don't know about you, but I have this little traitor in my heart or in my flesh, rather. His name is Praise of Man. And he's always sneaking around and whispering to me, hey, brother so-and-so saw you put your check in the, in the box. Hey, I think you prayed a nice little prayer this evening. Don't you think everybody was impressed? Hey, people think you're a pretty holy Christian. Keep it that way. He's always whispering to us. Paul says that's a dog's life. As God's men, we're to be looking above for the approval of our Heavenly Father. A dog keeps his nose to the ground. Man keeps his nose up, hopefully not in pride, but in praise to God. We should not be looking for earthly rewards for heavenly activities. But not only does Paul call them dogs, he calls them evil workers. Now the Jews prided themselves in doing good works. Not only does he call these careful, clean people, dogs, unclean, unclean name, but he also calls these careful good workers evil workers. The Jews prided themselves in doing good works, and Paul calls them evil workers. Their good deeds were only a whitewash on a grave full of dead men's bones. No matter how much good deeds you put on, if you're not justified by faith in Christ, you have no righteousness. 
because you blew it the moment you were born. You had Adam's sin staining every one of your activities. Every cry you gave, no matter how innocent it might have been in itself, you were sinful. And everything you did growing up, you did it for yourself. Even all the good deeds you did, you were sinning. You were in sin. And good deeds, putting good deeds on there is only a whitewash. It doesn't fix the putrefaction, the, the, the filthiness that's inside. And Paul says these are evil workers. They cry out about law keeping and how that we need to keep the law in order to be saved. Paul says, no, they're evil workers. Their deeds conform to the letter of the law, but their hearts are far from God because their hearts are far from God's way of righteousness, God's plan of salvation, God's Christ. They don't rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they rejoice in their little obediences to the law. And like the Pharisees, they might be careful to tithe little spices from their garden and find ways to violate the great commands of God's law. But he not only calls them dogs and evil workers, he also calls them the concision. Now in the English, concision doesn't give us a very clear idea of what he's talking about. But the King James translators actually did it with good purpose and it fulfills their purpose to a degree because the word concision sounds like circumcision. Does it not? Concision, circumcision. And that's exactly what Paul did in the Greek. He used a word that is an unusual word, and it plays on the word circumcision. The word in the Greek literally means the mutilation, but it sounds like the word for circumcision, so it's real close. So he calls these clean people dogs, and he calls these good workers evil workers, and he calls the circumcision the mutilation with a word that sounds like circumcision so that they'll get the point. He's talking about them. <clears throat> Judaizing Christian sectarians or Jews thought they were honoring God's holy covenant with Abraham by requiring circumcision before faith in Christ. But Paul says that they ignored the true spiritual meaning of, of the practice of circumcision, and they were ignoring the new covenant fulfillment of it. They were not the circumcision, but the mutilators the concision. They were taking God's command and turning it into something he never meant it to be. Paul is intensely dedicated to helping the Philippians and us to find our joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. Anyone who comes along and propounds another place to find confidence and rest for our souls is a threat to our spiritual life and health. They are dogs. They look clean. They look orderly. They look zealous, but their hope and trust is in their works and not in Christ alone. And like dogs, they will pursue earthly garbage and the trash of religious performance instead of the glory and greatness and the good spiritual food of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, Paul tells us that rejoicing in the Lord marks the Christian as a true Jew, a member of the circumcision. So he calls what normally people call the circumcision, calls them the mutilators, the concision. But he says we are the circumcision, verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit 
and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. We. Who is Paul referring to as we? He means Christians, believers in Christ, and specifically those who reject any rejoicing in anything else and only rejoice in Christ and Christ alone. And he's including Jews and Gentiles. Here he's talking as the apostle to the Gentiles, as the one who refused to have Titus circumcised, as the one who defended the Galatian believers against the Judaizers. And he's saying, we are the circumcision. We're the real circumcision party. Now, the circumcision, that term, literally refers to those who are circumcised. Normally, the Jews were known as circumcised ones. God had commanded Abraham after he gave him his covenant. He said, I will make a covenant with you, make you the father of many nations. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. I'll give you the land wherein you are a stranger and thou shalt keep my covenant, thou and thy seed after thee, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. That's Genesis 17. I put several verses together. And the Jews continued to circumcise their males down to the time of the New Testament. So Jews were known as the circumcision. And Judaizing Christians, because of their insistence that Christians had to become Jews before they could believe in Christ or be justified, they could also be called the circumcision or the circumcision party. Now think of what it meant for a native-born Jew, a real Jew, an Israelite, to be the circumcision as a good Jew. It meant to be in the covenant family. It meant to be the recipient of that covenant promise that God had made to Abraham. It meant being a recipient of all God's promises. And as a circumcised boy, you grew up very differently from the Gentiles that you saw. You learned the word of God, or you're supposed to. Your father was supposed to speak to you the stories of God's great dealings with Israel. And to be a member of the circumcision was to be a member of the favored nation, the most blessed nation in all the world. A covenant child, an heir of the land of promise, a recipient of all God's blessings and a friend of God himself. But Paul steals that name. He says, scrap all that. Y'all don't have anything. We're the circumcision. In other words, I was born into that but Christ saved me, and now I have news for you. Being a Jew doesn't matter. Being a Christian does. Amen. And being born into all of those blessings physically doesn't matter. But being born into them spiritually does. And so he says, we are the circumcision. Oh, you can just hear the Jews objecting. What? You, the circumcision? You don't even circumcise anybody. You let people join your Christian group without circumcision. Paul says, oh, we're the circumcision because, there in verse 3, we worship God in the Spirit. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I think most of us, myself included, we are not very good students of the Old Testament. Or we would see that he's actually appealing to the Old Testament right there. And he's saying, we are the circumcision because of these three things. Mm -hmm. 
we would think he might say, we're the circumcision because our bodies have been cut in a particular way. He says, no, we're the circumcision because we worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul is applying the teaching of the whole Old Testament about circumcision. And this theology that, of circumcision that Paul holds comes straight from the Old Testament. What was the greatest command that God gave to Israel? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now the Jews, they kept on cutting their, their baby boys' bodies, but they couldn't make their baby boys have the, or baby girls either have the change of heart that this great command required. They could not give them this love for God with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. But in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord promised that a day would come when the people of Israel would be so rebellious against their covenant Lord that all the curses of the covenant would come upon them. Death, famine, destruction, terror, enemies, exile would be theirs. And then, in God's great mercy, thou shalt return unto the Lord thy God and shalt obey his voice with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Back to the great commandment. That then the Lord will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Amen. And as you go through the Old Testament, you find many different passages that tie in with this, but we're only going to look at a few of them. We'll jump all the way up to Jeremiah 31. And this, Jeremiah 31, is right in the context of that same exile that God had promised. Because God told them what? When you fall into these great sins, I'm going to bring all the curses on you and you're going to be exiled. You're going to go out of the land. Well, here they are in Babylon or going into Babylon in the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah declares at God's, under God's inspiration, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward part and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. Remember the original promise to Abraham? I'll be their God and they shall be my people. God is saying, I'm going to repeat the promise. I'm going to make the covenant new, but this time with a people whose hearts have my law written on them. That's the same promise as what we saw in Deuteronomy 30, but it just doesn't have the word circumcise in it. He says, I'll put my law in your hearts. And then you go to Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 44, in verse 9, God declares judgment on the Jews whose hearts continued to be uncircumcised, though their flesh was circumcised. Speaking of the prophetic temple, where you know that, that vision of the temple that when I was young, I actually sat down and tried to draw it out. I was like, this, you know, this is pretty interesting, these porches and pillars and everything. I started to draw it, and I think my dad told me, he said, Nate, it's not intended to be drawn. You, you, you'll find so many details missing, you're not going to be able to draw it all. 
And I think he's the one that told me it's spiritual. And I believe that now. But in that context of that mysterious temple, that temple to come, the glory of what I believe is new covenant worship, in Ezekiel 44 and verse 9, he says, No stranger uncircumcised in heart nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And that's in contrast to what they were doing because here Israel is coming in as the covenant people. They're coming into God's house, but they have uncircumcised hearts. They have circumcised bodies, but uncircumcised hearts defiling God's worship. God says there's a day coming when only the circumcised will come, those who are circumcised in heart. So from Deuteronomy to Ezekiel, the Old Testament looked forward to a day when a better circumcision would be done and physical circumcision would be disregarded. Because one of the biblical patterns that we can't overlook is that when the better comes, the old passes away. When the greater temple came, the old temple had to go. When the greater, when, when, when the greater sacrifice came, the old sacrifice had to go. And when the greater circumcision came, the old, the old circumcision had to go, as far as being significant in God's purpose. Paul sees Christ as having brought in the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. And with the new covenant, the picture of circumcision has passed away, and in its place is the glorious reality to which circumcision pointed. Regeneration, new hearts, circumcised hearts, And what is the fruit of that circumcised heart like we saw in Jeremiah? Love. Love from the whole heart. Whole soul, whole mind for God. And how does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. And so that's why he says, we are the circumcision. How do you know you're the circumcision, Paul? Well, he said, don't look at my body because I actually am physically circumcised, so it wouldn't be a good example. But we worship God in the Spirit. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And as you move through Philippians chapter 3, what is rejoicing in the Lord but loving Christ with all your mind, soul, and strength? What is it but the great commandment applied to Christ? And so when he says, worshiping God by the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ, and having no confidence in the flesh, he's saying, we are demonstrating that the sign of the new covenant is done in us. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so that's why he uses these three characteristics of circumcision, circumcision of the heart, true circumcision, real, being really the circumcision, the covenant people of God, those who have been brought into God's Israel. Like he says in Galatians, and peace be upon the Israel of God. So first he says here in verse 3, the first of those three items, which worship God in the spirit, not by some mode of carnal ordinances, carnal ceremonies, earthly pictures and things that were imposed on the Jews until the time of reformation or change, as Hebrews calls it, Our Lord Jesus actually promised this when he's talked to the woman at the well. 
And he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God wasn't seeking people with a particular physical modification. He was looking for people whose hearts had been transformed by his spirit. In other words, he's looking for his people. And he infallibly finds them, works in them by his spirit, just like that woman at the well. What is Christ doing there? Making a worshiper. Bringing that undeserving Samaritan woman into his kingdom to make her a true worshiper, to make her a spiritual worshiper, someone who could worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. There wasn't anything for her to be confident in the flesh about. There wasn't anything for her to say, oh, this is great, I'm, you know, I'm from this great line of Jews, and oh, she's a Samaritan. All she can say is, all about her physical characteristics, she can say, oh no, I'm a mess. But in Christ, I'm received and I'm redeemed. But not only do we worship God in the Spirit, that is by the power of the Spirit regenerating us and then filling us and enabling us to worship God, but Paul says we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, as the promise of the new covenant says, they are his people and he is their God. He is their all in all. You know, Abraham, God said to Abraham, leave everything and follow me. And he did. God said to Jacob, fear not to go down into Egypt. And he did. God said to Israel in Egypt, go on up out of Egypt, go through the, through the, 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 the wilderness and go to the promised land. And he did. God said to Joshua, go up and take the land. And he did. So brethren, God says to us, leave all your loves behind. Leave every other desire every other dream, and rejoice in the Lord. And so when Paul says, how do we know we're the circumcision? Because we rejoice in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are the ones. Just like if you were a Jew, you'd know you were a Jew because you lived in Israel and your ancestors had been brought out of Egypt. How do you know that you're the circumcision in a spiritual sense? Because you got brought out of Egypt. God said, go to the land that I'm giving you, and you went. And you're on your way there. You're trusting in him. He is working in you. And so you rejoice in Christ Jesus. Because God brought Israel out and sent them into the land to love him with all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. And that's what God gives his people. And now we love our God. What's the greatest revelation of God? Christ. So we love Christ with all our mind, our soul, and our strength. Don't be a dog and turn to vomit when there's meat on the table. Don't be a mutilator who values physical religious ceremonies above spiritual transformation. You're in the new covenant. Love God in Christ with all your heart. Love Jesus with all your mind. Love the Holy Spirit with all your soul. That's being a true Israelite. That's being a truly circumcised person. That is someone who qualifies to worship God. So you, my brethren, if you are in Christ, you are the real circumcision. You are the Israel of God. You're the people of God. You're the peculiar people who are called out 
to be kings and priests to God. You're it, not in yourself. Don't let that puff you up at all. In fact, it takes away all the glory from man. It says, praise God. He did it. Christ did it. That's why we rejoice in Christ Jesus. He commands us, rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in yourself. If you rejoice in yourself, you're, you're violating the very purpose for which you were saved. Rejoice in the Lord. But not only do we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, we have no confidence in the flesh. Cutting my body won't do me any good. Adding religious practices won't do me any good. And as we'll see in the future, if, if the Lord tarries us and gives us the opportunity as we move through Philippians 3, in verses 8 through 11, he says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So this is under the idea of having no confidence in the flesh. Paul counted everything fleshly, everything earthly, everything in this world that he could have put on his credits, he put them on his debits. He said, it's, it's all loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I just want to know him. I just want to experience him. It's not just a knowledge of like, you know, learning some book facts, but knowledge of Christ, knowing this living Savior who rules over all, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Not just, okay, I begrudgingly give them up, but it's all rubbish, trash, something to go away from my sight that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. God approving us with the approval with which he approves himself, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Paul says, I give up everything in this world and I accept everything of Christ. Remember a week and a half ago we looked at taking up the cross. This is a taking up the cross passage where Paul says, I want to be conformable to Christ's death. Why? Because he wasn't like Peter who got in front of Jesus and said, far be it from thee, Lord, to suffer and to die and to rise again. Paul says, Lord, I want to know what it's like to suffer and die because I want that resurrection. And that's what he says. He says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He's not doubting whether he'll attain it. He just knows that it comes at the end of suffering and dying. You don't rise again from nothing. You rise again from the dead. So he says, I want to die with Christ so I can rise again with him. Peter thought you could just get glory without any death. The Lord Jesus told him, get behind me, get behind me Satan. We're going to the cross. And then we'll get glory. Paul says, I want that glory and I'm ready for the suffering. Bring it on. I want to suffer with Christ. And so, we know we're the circumcision of God. We know they're the tr we're the true Israel of God when we worship God with the Spirit, when we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and when we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, let me ask you, do you rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Are you consciously setting your mind on him? Is he what you value and desire. Do you have in you a, a new, surprising, 
God-given love for him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know none of you love him perfectly, but do you love him? And Paul says, rejoice in him. Consciously stir that love up. You can't rejoice in one that you don't love at all. You can't fulfill this if God has not put in you that love for the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Consciously stir up the love he's put in there. Let it burn hot and get rid of every other love. In this world of religious junk and temptations to idolatry, rejoicing in Christ is the only safe way to go. For you, it is safe. Are you content with external religious ceremonies? Are you content with physical things? Are you content with just sitting in church? Are you content with just going through a form or motions of spiritual things? It's just That's just physical. You're not doing anything spiritual if you're just going through the motions. Like the Jews and Judaizers who wanted physical circumcision. Are you content with your body being engaged, but your spirit is far away? God demands all of you, and in the new covenant, he gives you the grace to give all of you, and by his spirit, he enables you to give it all, body, mind, and spirit. So brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, forgive us for loving other things, rejoicing in other things, finding satisfaction and hope and confidence in other things. O Lord, forgive me. I have sinned so greatly in this way. O Lord, I pray that Christ would be our all in all, all that we look to, all that we desire, and that we would want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, and that we would be conformable to his death and also be part of his glorious resurrection. For Christ's sake, amen. Please stand, brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.